there's now a way to contact the Wolf Connection podcast. Send us an email to podcast at wolfconnection.org with your comments, questions, and guest ideas for Stephen and myself. You may hear your question answered on an upcoming podcast. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. Let's talk about some wolves. Very important guest here on the podcast to discuss his guest essay, which has really gained some traction that was published in the New York Times. He has been an author since a young man, a young boy in kindergarten. He has published uh, roughly eight books, and two of those being The Return of the Wolf to Yellowstone and The Killing of the of Wolf Number 10. Uh, both of those um, excellent reads. He is a Peabody and an Emmy Award winner as well, and he's coming to us from Livingston, Montana. Tom McNamee. Tom, pleasure to have you here with Stephen and I. How are you doing, sir? Excellent. Thank you. Of course. Absolutely. So just please go through, because we're, we're in the comment period for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, to look at the discussion of relisting gray wolves. Um, and your guest essay has really gained traction in the wolf community. People are using it in social media to tweet or at Secretary Deb Holland and also the White House. And just tell everyone the, the background of what's going on, a refresher of what's happening in Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and the, the feedback you're getting for your essay. Okay. Uh, wolf hunting had been underway for quite a while in the three states of Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming on a limited basis. Uh, we didn't like it much because it was interrupting the information lineage by which uh, know-how and, and geographic knowledge and so forth are passed down from father and mother to son and daughter in wolf packs, which, of course, are families. But as of last spring, the legisla- legislation legislatures of these three states went just bananas and opened up not just wolf hunting, but really just a wolf slaughter. Hard to say exactly why they decided to do that. They... Uh, the state of Idaho, for example, has decided that they want to kill 90% of their gray wolves. Uh, and the methods being used are not just the usual rifles and traps, but you're allowed to mow down wolves with snowmobiles and all-terrain vehicles or your pickup truck. You can use bait. You can use uh, wire snares. Uh, you can use night vision scopes. And you can, in Montana, for example, if I'm private land, you can kill 20 wolves at a go. <clears throat> and this is going on right now. Hundreds of wolves are being, have been killed all through the fall and up to now in the winter. And um, the, what the legislators have said, the, the, the uh, purported reason for this is to protect livestock and wildlife. The, the, animals that are hunted, primarily elk out here. And um, in fact, wolves have been really meaningless uh, in terms of their effect on elk. They do kill elk, but there are so many elk out here, it doesn't matter. Uh, In fact, there are so many elk that uh, ranchers have been requesting to the states that the elk seasons be extended. Because there's so many elk and elk eat grass, and they therefore they mm-hmm. compete with cattle, and um, and they, they also raid um, mm-hmm. haystacks, uh, and um, cattle 
generally uh, in the winter here are fed on hay. And then as for uh, the cattle themselves, the great claim is that they're protecting cattle from wolf predation. Wolf predation on cattle in this region is insignificant. It's maybe one in 10,000 cows. Though what real ranchers really worry about are things like a cow falls in the ditch and drowns or market conditions. The beef market is controlled by four basically monopolies, international corporations that completely control the price of beef. <clears throat> and those are the worries that ranchers have, not wolves. Most ranchers don't care. I myself was a partner in a cow ranch. We didn't worry about wolves. We worried about the regular things that other ranchers worry about. <clears throat> These men, and they are almost entirely men, in the legislatures love to dress up like cowboys. They're like make-believe cowboys. You know, they've got the hats, they've got the boots, they've got the big belt buckles, they've got the shirts with the little snaps down the front. And, um, you know, it's, it's a sort of great macho thing to, you know, swagger along the halls of, of Helena and, and uh, pretend to be a tough guy rancher and pretend to be defending the interests of ranchers. And it's just baloney. It's just killing. It, it reminds me of, of uh, the slaughter of black people we saw under Jim Crow when uh, hundreds of American black people were being killed in the South, not because they posed any threat to white people, but just because they wanted to kill them. They just hated them. And that's what's going on now with wolves. Yeah, I've, I've heard some of these things mentioned before as well, that you know wolves are making an impact on elk, but not significantly enough to really be this this incredible talking point. And I mean, even though, like you said, wolves kill about 0.01% of cattle, it, it just seems to be that it's, I don't know, they're five, like you said, they're five or different, the five to 10 different ways cows die in numbers. Um, I mean, I live on a ranch as well, and there's plenty of things plague a, a herd um, before predators. So it's not on the high end of the spectrum in the context of cattle loss um, in comparison to other things. And some of which are related to the naturally occurring conditions of cattle farming in general. So why does this fuel the argument so intensely? It's uh, entirely symbolism. Um, And, you know, people from elsewhere look at this region and think, and they see cattle on the ground, of course. And um, they think, well, that's the economy here. Well, it's not, actually. The main driver of the economy in this region is tourism. People come here to see wildlife. They come to see bison. They come to see bears. They come to see wolves. And in fact, uh, the most popular uh, wolf pack in Yellowstone Park for tourists, because it was, it lived in a place that's open grassland and they, they became very unshy about being seen. Called the Phantom Lake Pack, very popular with visitors from all over the world. And um, because they were used to being seen by people, they lost their fear of people. Well, they managed some people, hunters managed to lure them across the Yellowstone Park mm-hmm. boundary, which of course is invisible to a wolf, and they've all been killed. The whole pack is dead. Because, you know, they don't know the sound of a rifle cocking. They see hunters, they just say, oh, more, oh well, more tourists. Who are they? Bang. And then, of course, to encourage this mania, our governor, 
of Montana, Greg Gianforte, went out as soon as these new so-called rules went into effect. He has a billionaire donor who has a ranch adjacent to Yellowstone Park. He went out on this ranch and caught a wolf in a wire snare, shot it through the head, cut the head off, sliced off the hide, and took home his trophies. And, you know, Mr. Macho, great pride in, in, with a certain segment of the Montana population. This, this uh, raises him in their respect. And to, to the rest of us, it's just sickening. Right. I, I wonder, Tom, where is, where is the disconnect between what seems as though the, it seems as at least at minimum, it seems 50, 50 split between the, the way people view wolves in Montana from, from at least everything that we've, we've spoken to on this podcast and everything we've read. So where's the disconnect to, for the legislative body to go so far in one direction and not listen to the views of what it seems like is the majority of what you're saying are ranching issues as opposed to putting putting like you said this symbolism act at the top and and it seems like having the the minor the vocal minority take control of this management or, or what we what really is it management of this species well it's it's the kind of kind of mass insanity i think it's it's the madness of crowds people get together in a group and they start to egg one another on it's a little bit like january 6th these large number of people who continue to believe that Trump actually won the election. Everybody who actually knows anything uh, knows the facts. Everybody knows he didn't. But there are still a lot of people who think he did. There are still a lot of people who think wolves are a danger to cattle and that they're they're killing off the elk herds. And the fact of the matter is that there are more elk than ever. And, And, you know, once people start to believe these false things, it's very hard to convince them. In fact, there have been psychological studies that show that when people have a false belief and you show them the facts disproving the false belief, they tend to cling all the harder to the false belief. This is apparently human nature. God help us. Yeah. um, I I just want to, I mean, if we can get into Colorado a little bit even, because this has me thinking, but let's just say I'm someone who says, well, you know, wolves haven't been in the, in these states in centuries yet. Maybe we we were too heavy handed in the 1900s and shouldn't have taken it that far. But now that they've been gone for so long and everything seems to be fine, why even why release wolves? What are the upsides to doing this? Why should we bother in Colorado? Um, being that that's our next stage of events, really. You know, I think there are a, a number of reasons. The primary one reason why we brought them back to Yellowstone was and Central Idaho was that these ecosystems were income. They were wild ecosystems that were essentially intact. We, I was on the board for years of the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. And what we at the coalition always used to say is that the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem, which comprises not just the park, Yellowstone Park, the world's first national park, the United States' biggest national park outside of Alaska, but also Grand Teton, seven national forests, Indian reservations, private lands, state lands, and so forth, the size of Switzerland, big place. Um, we used to call it the biggest essentially intact eco- wild ecosystem in the temperate zones of the earth. Well, essentially intact, yes, but the key word was essentially because it was missing its apex predator, 
the wolf. And a lot of ecosystems, you know, an intact ecosystem can't really be intact without its apex predator. They stabilize ecosystems. They make things whole. And this is true throughout nature. You know, whether it's a coral reef or a colony of insects underground, apex predators are essential to the functioning of whole ecosystems. And so, you know, you can look at Colorado and say superficially, everything is okay. And well, yeah, sort of, maybe. But it's better with wolves. No question. Yeah. I mean, when you when you look at what you were saying before, when you when you spoke on the tourism aspect, uh, when I spoke to you prior to this, to us having this podcast, I believe that same day you got uh, on the front page of your newspaper, uh, I think it was the Billington Gazette or, or, yeah, Billings Gazette, that there is actually a business coalition that has formed opposing these extreme hunting, trapping measures. And so what is what kind of effect is that having locally that there are businesses that are now coming together and saying, this is too far, swinging too far the other way? Is that being heard? Uh, do you speak to anyone who, who runs a business there that that is seeing these things and opposing it? Well, yeah, I know a lot of those people. Um, you know, there are um, you know businesses that take people down the Yellowstone River fishing, and there are people who take uh, <clears throat> hikers out, and people who take uh, tourists out on horseback rides, backcountry camping trips. Um, there are simply motel owners, restaurant owners. And the whole the whole world around here thrives on tourism. There were four million people who came through Yellowstone Park last summer, last year. Um, uh, and all of them, even the hunters, the elk hunters. Well, the elk hunters aren't opposed to wolves. They, I mean, I'm sure a few are, but mostly they understand that wolves are part of the system also. It's just these crazy people who are, are against it. And so, in fact, there has been an effect from that this uprising of local businesses and uh, local people in general, uh, which is that tomorrow the Montana uh, Wildlife Commission is having, is having an emergency meeting to reconsider the wolf hunting rules in what's called Region 3, which is where I am right now, around the southwestern Montana. In, which incorporates all the land around Yellowstone Park. So we don't know what they're going to do, but they wouldn't be having this meeting if things weren't uh, coming to a boil. Yeah, I think sometimes in small towns especially, it's easy to think that, you know, tour. there are certain times of year, you know, when you live in a place and there's a lot of tourists and you can't get into a restaurant or you can't get into your local place or you can't get into places you generally go to. And I totally understand that sometimes can get on get under your skin. But I, I think that the assumption is that small towns like this would still be receiving the resources they're receiving or, or the, inf- or, 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 or be building the infrastructure they're building. Potentially they're, the, these towns wouldn't even exist anymore. People wouldn't be able to, to sustain them or, or to work in them were it not for, for, for tourism. I mean, what would, what would the towns outside of Yellowstone look like if people didn't come and visit them anymore in 2022? Well, that's right. They probably, as you say, many of them, I mean, they would just wither and die. Right. They wouldn't be here. 
Yeah. I mean, it's sad, but it's the, it, I think it's the truth, you know? I don't think it's sad at all. I think, I think we're sort of proud of having people come, come here. I mean, um, for, for a living, I mean, uh, the street next to my street here in Livingston is called Yellowstone Street. Uh, the main drag through town is called Park Street. Uh, the, the river that I'm living six blocks from is the Yellowstone River. Um, you know, this it's all about Yellowstone here. And, and everybody's, I mean, I think a lot of people who live here live here because of that. Absolutely. I just mean that this feeling that folks have that, they don't want to have to rely on outsiders to, to, to keep their, this small town alive that they have this romantic, you know, memory of, I'm sure even some of them from when they were, from when they were kids, but it, in the reality, like we, we depend on each other. And especially in these small towns, if we want to see them maintained and we want to see them looking pristine and and having people even able to live there, then we rely on, we rely on visitors coming and having a beautiful experience. And it's, I guess that that doesn't really translate. Well, you know, actually, Yellowstone Park was was largely created by the lobbying of the railroads mm-hmm. who wanted to bring tourists. So people out coming here. anyway, yeah. Uh, and, and so, I mean, it's from from the beginning. Uh, tourism has been the driver of this regional economy from the very beginning, 1863 or whatever it was when the park was founded, 1861. Yeah. And and it's, it's funny. The uh, there's a restaurant here that used to be the. Uh, in the, rail, the old railroad station where they're trying to restore passenger rail now. Uh, it's a beautiful place, and they have still the old posters that were put up by the Union Pacific Railroad promoting tourism to Yellowstone. Um, and there they were. I mean, they were right there from the very beginning, and they made a lot of crooked real estate deals. In fact, they still own a lot of land here. Uh, where they they made these trade-offs with uh, Congress. Well, you know, we're going to build a hotel for you as long as you give us X many acres up in the mountains where we can go and log and then take the wood out uh, on our trains. Yeah, it's a similar story for most small towns. They bring people in wood out. I mean, so so when we're talking about this and and we know, I mean, you've been living there for quite some time, when it seems as though, and it seems we have this dynamic now where the legislative bodies seem to not listen to the public and what their needs are and and what's driving local economies and what's driving these towns and these cities to to be robust and to to live. So when you see these things, and we talked about this too prior, is where is the higher up action, the governors, the senators of Montana, realizing this, that this is, this is a serious issue and it's not correlating on the federal level and they're not speaking to U.S. Fish and Wildlife. The White House hasn't seemed to be getting involved. It's, it's been very, very quiet because when, I, when I, saw, I saw your essay and then I saw it being retweeted multiple times, people are clearly gravitating towards your words, your, your work and saying, why aren't you looking at this issue? This is a serious issue. Because every time I see the, the Fish and Wildlife or Secretary Holland, you know, tweeting something out about all oh, these beautiful things that we're doing, the first, basically 99% of the comments are about gray wolves and also about wild mustangs, because that's also another issue that, um, yeah, that's happening issue. as well in the West. So where is the disconnect on the higher level, let alone Gene Forte, you know, the, the top, 
you know, the head honchos there in the state? Well, it's, it's, uh, it really boils down to the larger culture war that's underway. It's, it's not getting any better because, you know, the, the haters are louder and they're, you know, they do very, very well in, in terms of in, in stirring people up here. I mean, Jen Forte won the governorship here largely by displaying himself as a sadist. Uh, when he was, I had just been elected to Congress. He was a congressman before he was a governor here. Um, he was questioned by an, a reporter for The Guardian, the, the English newspaper. And Jen Forte didn't like the question. And so he chest bumped him and, and, and so hard he, he knocked him to the floor and then jumped on him and started beating the hell out of him. And, and he was arrested. You know, the cops got him and, and they took him to the station. John Forte refused to be uh, fingerprinted. Mm-hmm. He tried, tried not to have his picture made by the cops. And he was convicted of assault. Trump immediately praised him. This is his kind of thing, right? He loves to have, you know, politicians who have the guts to beat up a reporter. Boy, that's, that's great. And of course, it was great for John Forte. By the time he was running for governor of Montana, hey, here's a guy who beats uh, up the media physically. Um, and this kind of thing goes a long way out here with the people who, you know, I, I, I try to figure this out sometimes. You know, hatred is exciting. You know, it, it makes the, the um, cortisol level rise yeah. in the bloodstream. And um, it, it excites people. And peaceful uh, bliss doesn't. And, and, you know, love is a, is a sketchier, slipperier thing to put your finger on. And, you know, so loving wolves is not as powerful a motivator as hating them. And, um, and that's proved to be the case here in politics. I mean, it's the people who hate wolves are fewer, but they're more powerful because they, simply because hatred is more powerful, I think. And there are a lot of these people, and it, and it ties into the, um, the radical right very readily. <clears throat> you know, and they're often, you know, they, they wear clothes and drive trucks and other things that are very readily identifiable. You know, they, they have their visible badges of your tribal identity. You know, they don't wear Patagonia jackets. <laughs> they wear Carhartt. And, you know, and they, they drive certain kinds of trucks that are all jacked up high and have huge knobbly tires and noisy mufflers. And, you know, it's, it's very tribal. And I don't know really why this is and why. It's, and it's, also, it's self-perpetuating. You know, it's, there's a tribal thing of, you know, we're the downtrodden and, uh, you know, the coastal elites are invading us uh, and, and they're we're driving up the real estate prices. And, you know, we don't have college educations like these suckers. And and so, you know, I think the wolf is, um, you know, the wolf lovers probably are more likely to be college educated and um, wear Patagonia jackets, you know. They, they have their tribal identities too. So based on your experience in Montana, I've heard this argument a lot from folks who who don't want to see wolves is that, well, you know, a majority of people voting for wolf reintroduction are, are, are living in 
in in the cities and they're not going to have to experience the consequences of this and it, and it and maybe it feels um you know this this revenge that well it's, it feels like revenge in some ways right this revenge that we're seeing um feels like it might partly be in a response to that that you know folks are voting for something that they're not going to really have to bear any of the consequences of um what would be an appropriate way to to comment on that argument or or is there a way that we can we can tangibly compensate for that fact because I, I mean and i guess in some ways it is true well, I think first of all, they they should understand that the economic that the consequences of having wolves here are benign. You know, we're they don't harm us. They don't harm the economy. They they are benefits to the economy. Uh, they're not dangerous. You know, that when a wolf sees you, it runs away. Um, not like a grizzly bear. And people say, "Well, we're going to introduce wolves to, to Central Park." Well. That wouldn't work because there is no prey base in Central Park. But if you say, you know, we're going to introduce wolves to Eastern Long Island because the deer are all eating our gardens, which is true. Um, you know, that's not even, that's not implausible. Because uh, when I got started studying up on this, I, I got to be friends with a brilliant biologist in Rome named Luigi Boitani. And he has been studying the wolves of Italy for many years. And they were down to a very small number. And they lived just 40 miles east of Rome, a very small population in the Apennines. And um, and from that base, small base, they multiplied, and they both north and south along the Italian peninsula and northward further into Austria, Germany, France, and um, Switzerland. And um, they've done very well. And those wolves live very, very close to people. And sometimes, you know, they, they'll run into town and turn over garbage cans and eat spaghetti out of the, out of the alleys but, um, because the prey base is not so good there. But they're, of course, they're not dangerous there either. But the fact of the matter is that wolves can live among people. The only the limiting factor is bullets and traps and poison. Um, so, you know, they're not harmful. It's... it's um, so, you know, people say, well, you know, what's the downside of having wolves in your neighborhood? There's not one. Mm-hmm. What's the, what's the management plan that you would get behind in terms of, in terms of wolves, the ideal management plan? Is it where there, there's no lethal management or where there's some lethal management in certain cases? What's the management plan that, that, that you would approve of if it were handed to you? Uh, I think, uh, there are, there's the occasional wolf that gets, uh, it's in its mind that killing sheep is a good idea. Um, wolf like that has to be taken out. Occasionally, there are whole packs that start to behave like that, just like you know, gangs in the city will start to be criminals. And of course, we don't execute whole gangs, but that's what you have to do with wolves. And I think that's about it. Otherwise, just leave them alone. Right. Yeah, we heard from someone in Spain actually who said that. Sheep are much easier to protect if you have the right types of dogs, but That's right. I'm not sure I've seen seen the right types of dogs in North America. I think we generally go for collies and stuff, which are not a, you know. Well, yeah, but, you know, I, I have a friend who has a very large ranch in Idaho that goes from the Snake River Plain up to the top of the, uh, I can't remember the mountain range there. Um, and they run sheep and they protect them with dogs 
And they also have, and they have herders, they have these Peruvian herders who ride horses. Um, and they do things like they gather the sheep up at night and they put them, you know, separate fence around the man of sheep and that they put flags, these sort of flat, flags that flap in the wind on the wires that, that's encircling the sheep. And there, there are wolves right there. And they've had very, very little loss to wolf predation there. Uh, and it's partly a matter of sort of making a deal with the local wolves. If, if they understand that, you know, the dogs are going to harass them, um, you're going to manage the sheep in such a way that they're going to be less available. And you're going to shoot a wolf if it misbehaves. Then generally speaking, if, if time is allowed to pass and the wolf is, wolves are allowed to establish their own territories, um, you know, peace can be attained. And that's what they've done in most places in Italy because there are a lot of, lot of sheep there. Um, I have friends here, and this is not a wolf story, it's a coyote story, who have both cattle and sheep on a ranch in Sweetgrass County. And they have coyote family lives right in the middle of the sheep. And they've basically achieved peace between the sheep and the coyotes. So people don't believe this, but it's true. Because they just said, okay, we're going to leave you alone, coyotes. It's long you leave our sheep alone. And it's over time, because they've allowed the coyotes to establish a territory and pass information along from the old to the young, they, it's worked. And, and the coyotes don't kill the sheep, which is a miracle. Yeah. They don't. That is a miracle. How, what information is not being distributed? Because it seems you have multiple instances and friends of yours that are in the ranching community that they, uh, it's, I, I imagine they found ways to coexist with the predators on the landscape. So what, it, what information is not being translated from those success stories that you just said to, I guess, the, the, the vocal minority or the, the population at large to see that this is something that can be achieved in the long term? Yeah. I, I, why is it not better known? I, I don't know. It needs to be better known. I mean, we, t- we did talk to, it was a Karen Bartman, um, yeah. and Kurt, obviously Kurt Holtz and those, those are, yeah. yeah, two folks working on pretty incredible mm-hmm. mitigation tools, but is there a willingness? Like it, it they're coming and, and they're coming and we're going to be, we're going to be open to maybe some of these mitigation tools or is it a, it's a hard, no, it's a, it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard sell. I mean, in, in this area of Idaho that I'm talking about, there's been a, a, a cooperative group of ranchers who are all managing their stock in such a way that will allow wolves to live nearby. And they've slowly, slowly been working with other people. Um, this is near Sun Valley, you know, big resort town, a lot of money. And so there's a local population of uh, maybe just summer and winter people. People come to ski. People come to spend time in their summer houses. Um, and, of course, you know, money talks. And and they've been easier to convince, of course, because they don't have, first of all, they don't have sheep. But, um, and and so gradually they've been working with them. And, and for example, then they're, they're selling their mud or lamb meat 
to local grocery stores and helping the grocers to understand, you know, the sell for a reasonable price to the grocery stores. And then working with, say, for example, motel owners uh, who are dealing with people from not there uh, to help them understand that these ranches are thriving in the midst of wolves and slowly, slowly letting information spread uh, among people who are there, you know, permanent residents of this valley um, who don't have anything to do with wolves or sheep uh, or ranching in general. But his livelihoods depend on, let's say, tourism, and who's and the tourists, uh, you know, trying to help the tourists understand that this is how things are working. And so they talk to the bankers, and the, like I say, grocers, bankers, motel owners, and gradually, and they've had meetings. You know, they've had these community meetings where they make their presentations to try to explain what they're doing. And I think incrementally the word is percolating through. These are Mormon communities and uh, Mormons seem to be less likely to be haters. Yeah, it seems if it's on the local level, the information's able to percolate and spread where as if it's coming from government agencies or senators or individuals that holds, hold sway or power everyone's a little bit less likely to listen or, or think that they're fighting for their best interests. Is that something that you've seen just based on what you just told us? I, I guess, you know, I, when we were trying to get the reintroduction done, um, the guy who was basically in charge of it for the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, wonderful guy named Ed Banks, had to go to 10 billion community meetings and explain over and over and over and over that, this was not going to be that big a deal. And he, sometimes he had to have local cops standing with him armed <laughs> just to give his talks. And, you know, he, he got a lot of shit as he went along. And, um, but, you know, he also made a few friends and got a little bit done. And ultimately, I think he was very effective in uh, keeping the politicians, the, the rotating politicians that they, I mean, for example, Senator Al Simpson of Wyoming was powerful. He basically, Al thought he owned Yellowstone and he sort of did. <clears throat> and he stepped back. He could have stopped the Wolfer introduction all by himself, probably. And he, he didn't really like it, but he was not a vocal opponent. And that made all the difference in the world. And um, and other local politicians who could have been very noisy and, and harmful kept out of the way. Partly thanks to Ed and various other people who were very persuasive. Um, and then in turn, you know, when the politicians start to act like that, then people will start to follow them. And now we have a new crop of politicians who aren't like that. To thrive on the hatred. We've heard of that from a few people just needing to have security with them whenever they're out in the public mentioning wolves. I don't understand. Um, I don't understand what that what it would accomplish to hurt somebody like that to prevent 
a few cattle a year from being lost. I don't understand the, I don't, I'm confused about that. Um, but we've heard about it from groups and group from, I mean, a dozen people just saying they needed at some point in their career of promoting wolf reintroduction, they needed security. And that's just wild to me. When I was trying to sell my, promote my little book, the killing of wolf number 10, (laughs) I, uh, the, the guy who killed Wolf Number Ten uh, lives. You know, he got out of prison. He was sent to prison, thank God. Uh, and he was back in his hometown of Red Lodge, Montana. And he's back to his old tricks, which is drinking and and showing off his guns all over the place. He'd go into bars with his guns. And nobody liked him because he was he was really scary because he, you know, always tossing loaded guns around. And uh, I, I went over there to give a reading in the bookstore in Red Lodge. And a woman came to me. I was first, I was doing one here in Livingston. And a woman came up to me and she said, I'm from Red Lodge. Uh, and uh, I heard you were, I saw a poster said, you're going to give a reading over there. I said, yeah, yeah. She said, well, you know, Chad McKittrick is back in there and he's running around drunk all the time. And you better watch your butt. And I said, you kind of didn't think about that. And she said, well, you better call that bookstore owner. So I did. And he said, yeah, you know, I better talk to the sheriff. <laughs> so I go over there. There are two biggest cops I ever saw in my life with police, you know, P-O-L-I-C-E written across the front of their shirts. And they stood on either side of me with pistols while I gave this reading. And they said, you better get out of town before sunset. Tom, what do you, what do you think, if you're looking at it objectively in Montana, what's the way forward in your you know since you've lived there you've re- you wrote about it you, you're living it what's what do you see as the way forward what's the way for us to get to a point that we we don't have to have emergency meetings we don't have crazy hunting rules and trapping rules and and pushing the envelope one way or the other where can we find the middle ground in your opinion i wish i had an easy answer I think well, the first thing we have to do is put the wolves back on the uh, threatened species list. But even that, on an emergency basis, I think it's only good for, I don't know, 14 months or something like that. So that basically gives you a cooling off period, you know, like, you know, if you stop the Israelis and the Egyptians from shooting at each other, like, uh, I, I think it was Kissinger who did that. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I, Thomas Edsall had a piece in yesterday's Times in which he had been consulting with all these different scholars that studied polarization in various countries and sort of where the tipping points came and, and you know, what were the characteristics of these countries with extreme polarization. And uh, Edsall was concluding that we had passed the t- tipping point in this country. Uh, but I mean, I, I think that it has to be addressed at that level, a social level, not just about wolves as such, but we have to turn down the temperature in general and maybe have some less radical people running for office. Yeah. Uh, and and I, it, I, one thing I think is conceivable is that if the Republicans do badly in the next election across the board, and the party starts to split up and maybe, and there's a sort of Trump faction and a moderate faction and uh, the moderate faction starts to do well. 
and we once again have a moderate uh, center-right party. And I was just trying to look at the Italian elections today. I, I listened to the Italian radio when I shaved in the morning. And, uh, and um, in general, the, uh, the developments in, in European politics seem to be that the radical right and the radical left are, in a, are, are doing worse. And, and the center, centrist parties are doing better. And I just hope that maybe that we could start to come that way in this country and that the craziness will start to wear off a little bit. I mean, apparently uh, Trump's support is waning, uh, although the craziness is not. Um, um, I don't know. I, I, I would just hope that we start to have some people. I mean, right here in Park County, we have a very effective environmental an organization called the Park County Environmental Council. And they're very calm and they're very reasonable. And they have run into trouble in a few places where they tried to get some moderate zoning done. Word zoning is poison around here. Um, But for the most part, they've made a lot of friends and they they were instrumental in getting this group of businesses together to do a a business person's petition on walls. And that that was really, extraordinary and it was a remarkable accomplishment and if we can do more things like that where um, common ground is found that isn't necessarily automatically politicized where for example business people discover that it's to their advantage and that to the extent that those business people were signing that petition that's taking serious support away from the radical right legislators in Helena. If that can continue to develop, that would be pretty good. And I also think something is going on here that will make a difference, which is that in many ways it's a a negative, or people think of it as a negative here, which is the influx of people from outside this region. Bozeman is growing by leaps and bounds. People jokingly call it Bozangeles. Because why people coming here from California and they bring their politics with That's them. always the joke, huh? Um, <laughs> Everything turning into Los Angeles. Well, and, and the funny thing is that, um, and of course, California has plenty of right-wingers, but, and they go to northwestern Montana and the liberal Californians come to Boston. <laughs> so uh, they, the, uh, this part of Montana is getting bluer. And... Um, that's likely to be of benefit to conservation. Because Democrats are more likely to vote for conservation. I wish it weren't the case. It didn't used to be. You know, back in the 50s, you know, it was Nixon who signed the Endangered Species Act and the Clean Water Act. And he created the Environmental Protection Agency. We tend to forget these things that Nixon, who was such a horror in so many ways, was... Not a bad environmentalist. Yeah. It's amazing how some of that happens. Um, one more thing. I'm, I'm going to, I just have two more things for you, Tom, before we, before we wrap. Uh, the, what, what, what do you think, or where, if you were to point people in the right direction as to how they can get their voices heard for, if they're local in Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, 
what's a good way for them to have their voices heard, when are meetings coming up, and also federally, what's a good way. I know there have been posts on all sorts of social medias that are pointing people of how to contact uh, Fish and Wildlife about this. If you were to point people in the right direction, where would you tell them to go? I just learned after the publication of my piece that one of the primary obstacles in this whole thing is our Democratic senator in Montana, John Tester. I didn't know that. I wish I'd known it before I published. Um, he apparently is, is the big obstacle at this point. So anything anybody wants to write to, or to test or email him, call his office, whatever, he, that could make a big difference. He apparently is afraid he'll lose to a Republican, not this year, but in 2024. Um, he's going to lose the conservative so-called vote in Montana. And that it, supposedly Tester's putting pressure on the White House about this, and the White House in turn is putting pressure on the Secretary of the Interior not to do something about wolves. It's just wild. This is a crazy story. Uh, as for pressuring Secretary Holland, <laughs> certainly it needs to be done. But if you try to email her, you can't find her email address. I mean, every officer of the government has an email address, except her, seems. All you get, if you try to go there, is info at doi.gov. I'm, I'm sure if you write that, eventually you're going to say, please send this to Secretary Holland, it'll get there. But I mean, she's the one with the finger on the lever uh, to get the bulls relisted. I don't think writing to the local Republican representatives here is going to do any good at all, to tell you the truth, unless you just bombard them. I, maybe it'll help. I don't know. But I think certainly supporting uh, the organizations that are working on behalf of wolves is very valuable. Uh, Defenders of Wildlife is a very good one. Yeah, we're going to, I'm going to have those, I'm going to have, yeah, I'm going to have the links in there for people to look at uh, your article and, and the article about the business coalition uh, that was formed, which was uh, the Wild Livelihoods good. Business Coalition. So anybody who's listening that's in the Western part of the United States and wants to see how that coalition's working, uh, I'll have that there so you can take a look at it. My my last question for you, Tom, before... Yeah, That's I know, right. absolutely. I want everybody to have the right information and, and the factual information. So my last question for you, Tom, is when you hear the word wolf, what is the thing that comes to your mind? I see a pack of wolves howling in the snow. <laughs> love it. I love that. I love that. Nice and simple. Everyone, please, uh, you know, try and act uh, whatever you, you feel is what you're called to do. Um, Please uh, go out if you can get a chance to read uh, Tom's book, all of his books, uh, but not just the ones about wolves, but uh, look for The Return of the Wolf to Yellowstone and The Killing of Wolf Number 10. Uh, Thomas McNamee, thank you so much for joining Stephen and I. This has been uh, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate yeah, it. Really Both you guys. You're great. And your organization. I think, you've, I think what you guys are doing is really Yeah, and, and to tack on to what John's saying there, you know, try to take try to take the action you're inspired to, but also every chance you get, we got to, we got to just do better about creating common ground and having, you know, productive conversations with each other, even when we disagree, because that, that even just on the ground floor, just around us is getting, is becoming almost nearly impossible. And, um, I think that's something we have to retain a little bit if we're going to solve any of these complex issues or, or compromise even a little bit. You're absolutely right. No, Stephen, oh, you always bring that point home, and I, I thank you for that. Yes, everyone, we got to meet in the middle. 
everybody, we're all here. We're all trying to do the best for ourselves and for the species that are here. So please, let's try and hit the radical middle. That's that's the way we got to do it. So, uh, house to everyone out there. And uh, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Thank you, Tom, for joining us. House to everyone out there. And Stephen, I'll be with you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye bye. Looking to support Wolf Connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack? Just go to wolfconnection.org, click on the donate tab, and find out more information.